This is Just Winging It. I'm John Abdullah. And I'm Patrick Green. What up, man? Sorry I was out last week, but I have to say... Were you vomiting as I had uh, anticipated? I, I actually was... I was th- thank you for yeah for announcing that on air. I actually was not vomiting. Oh, really? I was just super stuffed up because Henry oh. started preschool, and of course, yeah. he came back with sniffles the first day, and then he was fine within three hours, and I was like on the floor <laughs> gagging on What's up? With, that's exactly what snot. happened to me. It was Except for me, it was like Grace was sick for two days, which for her is, you know, a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got sick for it. I was out for a whole week of... <laughs> work you know i was working from home but like you were out for a while yeah. I, I had a fever and a sore throat yeah. thing so like you know that's why you got what you got from us last week right and then you finally came back and i was like i'm not even gonna i can't do anything today <laughs> i was completely out of commission yeah but uh, i i'm glad i did because i got over it quick like it was an i had like a normal like adult person getting sick experience yeah where i wasn't overworking myself oh that's smart i actually took that a must sick be day nice. i stayed in on a saturday for at least the first half of the day i slept in a little bit and I got better. You and look that was rejuvenated. Feeling. I feel rejuvenated. Yeah. I even feel like actually physically better than I did before getting sick last week I because can I can now, to that. I can appreciate it. Yes. That isn't that life. I mean, it's yeah. so yeah. Obviously, the most extreme version of this for me was you know coming back from cancer. cancer. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Always like, got to play that. I know. Card, John. I know. But I mean, you know, it's it's like that. That is what I don't think about as much. And now it's like these moments where I'm sick, and then I re- really do appreciate being healthy again. Yeah. So like you know everybody else is like looking gloomy because it's a Monday at work and I'm like woohoo I'm ready to go. You're like bitch I survived can't it's like people who like use the fact that they were in the military think yeah. for your service to like lord it over you where they're like <laughs> you think that's bad you should try basic yeah, training exactly. What's funny is that that's the how people I interview that I'm friends now, with you know, I'm like well I beat cancer so you know so what you I'm pretty got. sure I could figure out your business challenge buddy <laughs> right yeah right pretty yeah, sure you, I you want to hear about a challenge yeah now, in my experience the people who I'm friends with who went, who like served in the military and actually saw like duty and yeah. like actually saw like combat in the military they like never talk no, about that of shit of course it's the people who like did basic training and then did a desk <laughs> job for a while <laughs> they're <laughs> so fucking insufferable about that thank you for your service thank you for your service um hey i want to give a quick shout out please do so a another listener had a baby uh and this is not a scottish listener i'm this pretty sure a- it's directly related to like as soon as people started listening to this show they actually had more babies that's true i, I we don't have like numbers on You're this welcome, but world. we're kind of assuming that there were no births before this show for at least a period of a month i mean there was month. like one or two yeah and yeah, now they're isolated right now there's at least five orders five of magnitude more yes mm-hmm. Um, but uh, instead of Scotland, this one's from Ireland. This is Michael Howland and his lovely partner, Andrea, uh, had a baby girl named Faye. And um, Michael is a, a dear friend of mine. He is a fire-breathing metal drummer. Those are all aren't, actual aren't things. Aren't all of the metal drummers <laughs> fire-breathers? <laughs> they are, ideally, yeah. yeah. But he's a great guy. He's another Formula One fan. And uh, we've been friends for years. And he uh, he and his and his partner were listening to this show before they knew they were going to have kids, like thinking maybe oh, if wow. we do at some point. you know, And you still and, did. Uh, yeah, that's 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 the scary thing. <laughs> no, I mean that's the scary. He does scary. breathe fire to be. You know what? Military. I hope you feel you know more prepared and you have a sense for what it's really like, and that we didn't you know sort of turn you against the idea. I'm glad to hear that you're still you were still like willing to you know take the plunge. Yes, exactly. Take the nightmarish <laughs> plunge into the chasms of uh, of eternal. And I look torment. forward to you teaching your child how to breathe fire. I think that will be a special moment in both of your lives. He's gonna do it. Of course he He's is. He's totally going to do it. Hey, his his band is called 12 Gauge Outrage. Check them out. They're really good. Go check it out. Uh, and thanks for listening to the show, Michael. Congratulations, guys. Thank you. And thank you to all of you who are going to attend on October 6th at the Somerville Armory Cafe. Uh, for <laughs> <laughs> We're throwing that in. All right. So, yeah, this is a little bit. So it's not the actual whole armory, okay? That That's is right. a very large venue. This is our first it's event, people. It's the first event, okay? It's like the little closet when you walk in. But it is a thing. <laughs> 
hey, there's there. It's an it's a functioning cafe with drinks yes. and food. So Humans. you know, come enjoy it. And uh, it'll be at 3 p.m. October 6th. Um, it'll be interactive, live, all the other stuff I've said repeatedly over every episode, so I hope you've already heard it. And, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. It's going to be great. When this airs, it's going to be like a week before the event. Oh, man, shit. We still have no idea what we're talking about. It's true. We haven't talked about it all. We were hoping that you would all write in and tell us what you'd like to hear. That's true. Um, and in the absence of that, it'll be the people who do show up who get to say, you know, I want you to hear, I want to hear you talk about this. I think what will probably happen is they'll say that, and then we'll just kind of like take the microphone and give it to them and then I'm going to get some coffee and then they're going to do the show for us yeah. and that sounds like a great plan. I think that's how social media works now. That is how it works. Yeah, you this just is let the audience do it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Definitely. Hashtag brand. So speaking of just doing it, I don't even know, this isn't really a transition, but I feel like we have a meaty subject <laughs> here and transition. I feel like um, we're both feeling vibrant on this Monday and we should just we should just dive in cuz like this is going to be this is going to get intense. I agree. Just yeah. So uh, yeah, so let's get let's get right to it. So this is um, uh, we're going to unpack a speech today that was actually a commencement address by my favorite author and a guy who's had a a really um, enormous impact on my life and in a way few other artists have. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit. And we'll get into the speech a bit too. You have some background with it as well, so we can pretend like I'm teaching you for the first time. Sure. But you do you do already have context. I will give context yeah, to I our listeners. I remember seeing this speech, and maybe we can even share it in the notes. Uh, a version of it that has like an animation or something along those lines. Right. On YouTube, that I think Bethany had shared with me, you know, several years ago. And uh, certainly resonated with me, you know, not to the extent where I branded myself. <laughs> you got your entire with forearm it, covered um, with as it, as Patrick has done, and, my, and Micah, um, which I was never sure if the branding on your arm was associated with that, or it actually was David the Painkiller who said, "This is water," <laughs> and that's who. You know, word's still out on that one. I was so I was so affected. I was like, I gotta go. You know, uh, David the Painkiller has changed my life. Yeah, and I need to go memorialize this. Right. I go to the tattoo parlor. They're like, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, just tell me this water, David. <laughs> and, and and for those who don't arm. know, this is David the Painkiller was very for, uh, a story told very early on in our show about a, uh, a, a what is it? a masseuse massage who came therapist to our office. A you, genius. you don't call them masseuses anymore. Is that not masseuse? Okay, masseuse. Masseuse. And uh, and gave Patrick the best massage of his life, but also uh, was into what was it, what is the term? Uh, d- divining, divining water, divining water. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. It wasn't actually. It, to be honest, it wasn't that great of a massage. It was like <laughs> at, know, the, at just... the time I was really into it, but it was more the experience. <laughs> it was a massage. It was it was like a massage. Did yeah. you already have that on your arm when he came? I did. Yeah, that Holy was why he. That's why he brought oh, it up. Okay. I think I actually mentioned this. Can in that you episode. imagine of all the fucking people who are giving yeah, you a massage? That's why he brought it up. Who are like literally like touching your skin? Yes, many people do this. <laughs> Of all the people, you get the guy who fucking divines water, who who is rubbing your arm and is thinking, holy shit, this is divine intervention in this moment that yeah. I am literally rubbing the arm of someone who has on their arm, this is water. Yeah. And I'm like, David, you got to move off my arm because you've been rubbing my arm for fucking 12 minutes. Everything in this man's weird. life led to that moment. Yeah, he's like, my it life. It probably changed the trajectory of everything after that. There is an immutable reality to my existence that has led me to this moment <laughs> unchanging and divinely inspired to love learn about the water from this man's forearm no yeah that was uh it was special that's why he, he thought it was a reference to divining water yeah so and what I was is like, it a reference to quite. shall we go into yes, it let's then? go into it yeah so so it's a reference to a commencement address delivered in 2005 to uh the Ken- graduating class of Kenyon college in ohio uh by david foster wallace who was an american author journalist essayist um all around uh wizard with words and mm, philosophy indeed. 
and uh, <laughs> indeed, and uh, a little. I bit mean, of I just think it was yeah, you appropriately worded there. Wizard with words. He was so yeah. like some of his biggest were Infinite Jest is probably the most well known. That's right? his magnum opus. That was the one that yeah. changed everything for him. And then um, what was right before that? The one that I actually read broomstick or something he had the yeah that's right you read that yeah, yeah the broom of yeah. the system yeah. yeah so the so the broom of the system is an amazing book which is shorter than infinite jest but it's which still is it's still 700 why pages I read so, it. yeah um, it's still so when i i start i downloaded infinite jest i think i bought it on you know kindle and yeah. then i saw that it was like a, a bazillion pages yeah it broke um, the kindle there isn't even a wor- uh, actual number a word for the number <laughs> of pages that it is <laughs> yeah they have to invent a word for it it is a huge book but so it i is was a, like uh and and amazing and one that you cannot just read quickly no. You know, I mean, it's packed, right? Which is why he's a wizard with words. Yeah. So anyway, go on. No, it took me six months the first time I read it. And I also, I, I was introduced to it at kind of a pivotal time in my life, which is partly why I think it imprinted on me so much. Mm. But we can get to that maybe later. At Wizard um, School. At my Wizarding Academy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he wrote three novels. He wrote The Broom of the System, Infinite Jest, and then um, The Pale King, which was a posthumous release. Um, ah, he so did there were a, only three total. I did not know that. Yeah, well, there, there were a there number short of collections before, of there yeah. short stories and essays and some pieces of his journalism that had been collected. But, mm. um, you know, he died at 46, so he didn't have that's that true, much time. That's true, and also, yeah. everything he wrote was a billion pages long. So, so it must have, I can only imagine how long each of them took. Yeah. Yeah. And well, part of why it took so long also is he had crippling depression throughout his mm. life. So. That kind of feeds into this speech a little bit and yeah. into what happened with him. But I, I want to say that, like, death will come up on this discussion, I'm sure. And it's easy when talking about David Foster Wallace to kind of fixate on that because he died in this very kind of pseudo-romantic manner where, you know, like, we have this this image of, like, a troubled genius artist who kills himself because the, the weight of the world is too strong. Yeah. And it becomes really easy to make that kind of at the center of our conversations around him. But... Uh, I don't want to do that. Like, I, I would rather kind of avoid that. He killed himself a couple of years after the speech was delivered yeah. um, due to his depression. But his life was about a, a lot more than that. So, like, we can kind of, you know, not get super deeply into that. Totally. And was it only a couple of years after he gave it that he... Yeah, three years. So so he's been dead now for almost 10 years. Is that 11 right? 11 years. 11 years. Yeah. Damn. I, I feel like it was, you know, very recently that I remember reading the news that he died. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that was the first I had heard of him, which is crazy to me. I, you know, I had people, I, I had been, he had, his work had been suggested to me a couple of times before that by yeah. people um, based on just my, my proclivities and what kind of stuff I was already into. But right. um, I never had taken time to really get to know him because I figured, you know, I'll, I'll find, I'll get around to these giant books at some point. Right. And then he died and he was kind of on my radar more. Oh, uh, um, okay. And was, I thought you had already known no, about him. No, I didn't know about him when he was I alive had, at all. I didn't read anything of his until after he died, but I had seen that video. I'm fairly certain. I could be wrong about this because, you know, memories are fucking shit, mm-hmm. especially ours. But <laughs> but uh, no more hippocampus uh, cells, They're as dead. we've talked about. Yes. But I'm fairly certain I had watched this video before he had died. And then it was shortly after that he died and then it was like holy shit like mm-hmm. this is someone who just you know shared these words with the world um and had this crushing depression at the same time which didn't at all feel at odds to me like it actually it made sense that he yeah. would have that sort of sensitivity um to the world and anyway i want to learn more because you've obviously you know, unlike me who watched the video and then read the book, which I guess I read the book, so I'll be fair to myself. But, you know, you did, I didn't. Which is a great book, too. It isn't is. that? He wrote that when he was 22. Isn't that crazy? That's fucking crazy. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. And that was also, he wrote that alongside of a philosophy thesis, too. <laughs> that was his English thesis in Amherst, which is just fucking wow. mind-blowing because it's an amazing novel. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so this, uh, so his life was, was you know, uh, pretty remarkable, I think, in a lot of ways. And it was marked by this... Uh, 
drive to understand people better and to understand the world better and try to communicate this sense of like the overriding importance of empathy and of not operating in your default settings. Yeah. And the reason why infinite jest, well, it is, it is kind of, it is kind of aligned <laughs> to mean, it. And you know, it's I something say half that, jokingly. It's kind of true. And, and I feel like um, infinite jest in particular as a novel is, uh, is remarkable because it really was the first time I had been taught empathy in a way that I felt was genuine. That wasn't mm. preachy and it wasn't, you know, uh, over-reliant on sort of moral paradigms that pre-existed my birth that I didn't have any say in. It wasn't right. dependent on religion. Because we know now that you don't believe on, in moral paradigms. I so. don't believe in anything. Yeah. Um, it you was, struggle with them. I do. Meaning, the idea of meaning in life, you struggle with Well, actually, with yeah, exactly, yeah. I, yeah. I, well, I'm, and, I'm being and serious. I, no, you're, you're <laughs> right, yeah. And and I struggle with the idea that meaning is something that can be defined for us rather than by us a little bit. I think it's important, mm. and that's kind of what this, it goes into a little bit, so we'll yeah. talk about that. But anyway, so, so um, you know, I read Infinite Jest for the first time uh, right around the time that we got married in 2012, and uh, and I finished it on our honeymoon uh, on the island of Capri in the middle of the night. And it was just like one of those moments where... I'm laughing where... because if you finish that book while you're on your honeymoon, I'm questioning how much of your honeymoon <laughs> yeah, experience. That was all I did on honeymoon. But go on, sorry. Well, it was a six-month journey reading it. it was, I mean, it was, it's, yeah, a, it's an it enormous adventure. It is a journey adventure. to read a book like that. And, I had, and, and also, I was reading it digitally because it was too big for this. It was literally too big for the suitcase. Yeah. So I had to bring a, an ebook version of it. <laughs> it would have been the 50-pound Which is crazy. Limit. It would have pushed it over the limit. Yeah. Um, so I didn't actually know how much was left because I wasn't looking at like the page counter on the top. And I remember getting How to the last page of it and thinking like, this has to be it. And then it ends with the sense of like gravity. And it was just a, it was kind of a life changing thing. And on the airport, on the way to our honeymoon in a gift shop in Munich on a radiator, there was a small book, black and white, that said, Das ist Wasser. And I was like, what the fuck? That, this See, is water? This is what I mean about I know, always trust moments magic. of magic. Exactly. Right? right. And that was the first moment that I thought about because to me that was the most cosmic of all. I had just gotten married to my soulmate. Yeah. We were traveling to Europe together. We just had the most amazing experience and we were, you know, going into this vast unknown of what life would become, not not being able to see the road in front of us, but being aware of its reality for the first real time. Yes. You know? And uh, and then in this gift shop, and it wasn't even on sale. Like it was just sitting on a radiator somewhere. And I brought it up to the woman at the front, and she was like, "Yeah, you, just, you can take it." You know, somebody had like left it there. Oh wow! Because this wasn't published but would you, until you probably would have later. never even noticed it if you hadn't just read that book and gotten into him, right? right? And if I hadn't been thinking, because it didn't say this is water, it said Das ist Wasser. Yeah. And I open it up, and it's a German. So here's the thing with the speech, which we'll get to momentarily, is that it wasn't written anywhere, right? This was an actual commencement address that he had written, and he had redrafted a million times, and he was super nervous about speaking in public. So it was a big deal for him, and he didn't want this wasn't like through his publisher or his agent. Right. This was just something where an undergraduate had requested him as their speaker, and he had kind of signed on to it because he was promised a tennis game by the dean, and that was something he was into. <laughs> and he was like, "Okay, I'll go along with it, and I'll do this." And also because he clearly had something to say with the speech, which again we will get to. And wanted to play tennis, and yeah. he really wanted to play tennis. <clears throat> tennis, and, um, one of the few details I remember from the broomstick one. I already forget the name of the book. The broom of the system. The broom of the system. Uh, no, he, which is a reference to an apple. It's the broom of the system. You're, when you, you you eat it and you shit out all wow. the impurities, yeah, yeah, and it's a reference to other things too. But we'll let I'm people sure. read the book. Um, so anyway, so he, uh, so this this book was out there, and I was thinking this is so like important. It was a German translation of it, and the reason why it existed in the first place was because this wasn't a published work. It was just the commencement address, like yeah, I was saying. Yeah. So um, for years, this thing existed basically only in this transcript on the internet that somebody had gotten down, and there are like big swaths of it where it says like unintelligible it's clear he was like clearing his throat and couldn't really you yeah. know understand what yeah. he was saying 
And um, it became kind of this like mythical lost DFW work. And then um, eventually Little Brown, his publisher, put it into a book form. Um, but before that, before the copyright existed on it, people were just disseminating it all over the place. So, for example, like that video that you saw, right, yeah, yeah. Um, was an, a, a prime example of that. Um, but the message was so important yeah. that it had to get out. And people now, like, you know, speech, uh, people who study rhetoric are counting it as like, you know, one of the great speeches, especially with commencement addresses. Oh, but yeah. like. You know, for example, there was a, um, a an expert, it was a historian who was on NPR last year, and she had, like, her two favorite speeches with her, and one of them was the Emancipation Proclamation, and the other one was Holy This Is Water. Shit. And she studied them as two works of literature that can go hand in hand with each other, and um, wow. it really is a momentously important thing, I think, yeah. for people to hear, which yeah. is why I have it tattooed on my arm. Um, that makes more sense now. It does, yeah. But also, <laughs> also it's David the Painkiller. <laughs> so, uh, so you want to kind of get going on it? I would love to. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read the beginning of it, uh, and we're going to read some things, you know, as we talk through this. And uh, and if you want, it might be useful actually to you listening to this, to uh, like pause it after I read a passage from it and kind of just think a little bit internally. Because to me, one of the reasons why this is so eternally relevant is because it takes time to process some yeah. of the ideas, and it takes repeated listenings and repeated conversations. So, you know, feel free to pause it. You're not going to miss anything. Feel free to pause and extend this out as long as possible to derive the most meaning from us yeah. sharing this with you. Like take weeks off. Like seriously, yeah. just pause it and then take a month, but come to the event. Because listen, people, we're sharing gold with you. Yes. You know, you can't just like, I don't know where to go with that metaphor of gold, but you can't just like. You can't eat it. <laughs> you can't eat it. You can't eat it. You've got to sit there with your gold and just cherish it yes. slowly lick until it. you die. you got to lick it, right? <laughs> I think that's how gold works. Yeah. All right. So, so, so the speech begins with a... Uh, a little, uh, uh, a little allegory. Okay? okay, a burp. <laughs> <clears throat> so he says, "There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, "Morning, boys. How's the water?'" And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, "What the hell is water?" So. That's how this whole thing begins. And, I, and I'm curious, before we get into it more, how does that hit you and what does it make you think about? I mean, it makes me think about what has often come up on this show, which is that we operate on autopilot in our lives. And I think what we try to do is call out some of the things that we do on a regular basis without actually uh, pausing and reflecting that we do them or know that we do them. I mean, the principles behind meditation or mindfulness really are so in line with this, right? It's like you, we all breathe without even thinking about it. Um, and there was a time where I am the idea of a breath. I, I guess I'd be interested to know when that was even like a word <laughs> either, either it was a very early on, you know, word that people acknowledged, or I feel like maybe that would have taken a while for humanity to even acknowledge this basic thing that you do all the time that you don't, you're not conscious of like to breathe. Yeah. To breathe. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what I hear when I think of, of this is water, the idea that a fish would have that sort of um, self-awareness or it's not just self-awareness, but it's this awareness of something greater that's all around them. Anyway. It's interesting you're, you're unpacking the word to breathe because it actually shares a root with the word for soul. Yeah. Right, which is animus. Right. Um, and that's, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating that there, there was this conception of breath being the same thing as the conception of self, right? Yeah. And you can look at it like, you know, cogito ergo, or not, not, I think therefore, I mean, we could look at it like, you know, dum spiro sparrow while I breathe, I hope, right? Or you can look at it through that lens. Yeah. 
Or you can look at it as breathing is the mechanism through which I survive and I'm alive. And because it's controlled by systems I have no control over, there's no need for me to pay attention to it. Uh, but the choice to pay attention to it is an important choice. Yes. Right? This this so directly connects for me back to what we talked about with Amy Krause Rosenthal and pointing out this always trust magic thing because you can go through your life and think that everything is is random and that there's some statistics behind, you know, the prediction of any thing that to happen or whatever. But um, you also, you can become aware of it in such a way that you ascribe some meaning that, you know, it, it isn't that there's some intervening force in your life as much as there is the magic that you sort of make of life mm-hmm. and being aware and present with it. Um yeah, it also brings to mind that maybe this metaphor is fucking broken because a couple of fish <laughs> are not going to. First of all, if they could develop the vocabulary, okay, let's just say they did. Yeah, they certainly, uh, in my estimation, are not intelligent enough creatures to be able to then have a conversation or, or want. Anyway, well, what if they could? You know, yeah. I mean, they don't have they're, spirits. They're clearly very. That's my belief. <laughs> there's no animus. <laughs> clearly, they're very intelligent fish. Okay. Yeah. Especially the old one right, who's fine. already who's already aware of this, right? The wise but one. But it's true. Like, Mr. I, I think about fish. this, Mr. Miyagi. I think about this a lot in terms of mindfulness too, because you know, I've been doing actually. I've been back on Headspace now for a couple yeah. of weeks, doing it every single day, every single weekday at least, which has been great. Yeah, the weekday thing is about as best as I can get with but it. But it's too. good. It, that's realistic. You oh know? yeah, yeah. And I'm always struck by this feeling of like starting with the body. So you start with kind of the abstract, like you start with all the shit floating around in your head and then you pull it into the breath and you focus on just the breath as something that's not necessarily just auto mechanical. It's something that's actually real. That's like happening that your body is doing yeah, and that you have control over, but you don't realize you have control over it. Right. And then using that as a way to kind of ground yourself into the weight of your body. I love that moment when I'm thinking like, holy shit, I'm For actually sure. pressing into this chair. Like the fucking gravity that is pulling celestial objects toward our planet is also pulling me towards the center of the earth that we're rotating on. Mm, you know? I've never thought of it it's as directly as that. But, that's, but it's, a big, it's a big moment when you huge, realize that. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I am not free floating. I am bound, I'm bounded to the earth that we're traveling on, right? Yeah. Um, and like we never take a second to think about that. But as soon as you do, it recontextualizes everything else around you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then when you go back into like your thought space, you have some degree of agency over it, I've noticed. And then when you can also let it go right. again and go back into your body, you realize like, okay, I exist both as like a physical, corporeal thing that needs to survive and also as, as an abstract idea engine that can process things, you know, on yeah. my own terms, right? And I think I've, I spent, you know, a significant part of my life on autopilot when it comes to my emotions, my responses to certain things and feeling like, and I think this is often out there in the world that you can't control your emotions, you know? And like, it may be true that in a very direct way, uh, you may not be able to sort of, you know, not get angry about something or whatever. And maybe that's not even the way to look at it. But the idea that you actually can cultivate different responses to, you know, what's going on in your life and have more control than you think you do is, is pretty powerful. Um, so anyway. the reality is, is you will still get angry, right? Oh, like, yeah. And, and, it's, the, and, and the it's objective okay is not to, to not be angry, right? Right. It's that, uh, and for me, I think it's being uh, present with it and maybe channeling it in different ways that are more productive, you know? So, like, don't smash that thing. <laughs> don't murder those people, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, it's about, it's about getting a frame of reference for it. So I'm going to yeah. go, I'll sum it up. I'll tell you what he says it's about. He says, quote, the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life or death importance. Mm. Or so I wish to suggest to you on this dry and lovely morning. 
That is important to me. And, and that, to me, is actually what the speech is really ultimately about, which is that life will always be what it will always be. Yeah. There's no breaking that, but it's what you do within that system that derives meaning on your terms from it. I think that that's right. That we always have the ability to, uh, to make life worth living for ourselves. And if we lose sight of that, yeah. then we become just automatons you know, trudging towards death, and who fucking wants that to happen? Right? I agree. I mean, I think I, I agree with what you said earlier about I think your skepticism of meaning being something that can be uh, told to you, you know, that you would derive meaning from a certain thing. That's something that you have to find in your own life in some way. And maybe there's plenty of shortcuts to like being told you should find certain things meaningful or, you know, whether it be religion or something else. But there is such a, there are people that I know in my life who are far more um, spiritual who aren't religious or who are religious and, you know, lack that kind of authentic connection to meaning. Um, and that isn't, and, and I also know people who are religious and very deeply spiritual, but the point is that um, just because you have a framework where you're supposed to find meaning in certain things doesn't mean that you actually are there. Right, know? right. And, and what happens is that if you're chasing things where meaning has been prescribed for you, but you don't necessarily derive meaning yourself from it, yeah. whether you have a vocabulary to express that or not, you will always be chasing a dragon that you can never catch, right? I think You'll be creating true. a vacuum. And I feel like if yeah. th- that's, that's to me, the whole issue with like living by somebody else's moral code or somebody yeah. else's system of belief is that without, y- you can always come back to it and say like, that is the way that I want to live. That is what I believe. That is that's what right. I think is right. Yeah. And that is valid if it's valid for you. But- it's somebody else's until you analyze it as your own, right? I think that's totally true. And what I will say, though, is, uh, and of course, we should also eventually have an ap- actual episode about religion because that could be really interesting to explore. Mm. There is something powerful in these um, frameworks that have carried on through centuries um, of humanity, of your own um, ancestors, that you know other people are finding deep meaning within. Um, and so... Just like I feel like you have to sort of explore it and make it your own and find your own meaning, I also think that to disavow that because it's someone else's creation is also, uh, I don't know, it's missing the opportunity to find meaning in something that's so clearly, as a, as a framework, um, has led to others finding deep meaning. And I, th- that's kind of where I generally come out with it. It's like, you know, there are those who just like go through the practice and don't get anything out of it. And to me, that's just a, it's a total waste. Um, and I think there are those, just like I always say, there are two kinds of people in the world. <laughs> There's only two kinds of people. <laughs> and there are those who just dismiss it as someone else's practice and maybe don't, haven't given it the opportunity to, you know, to to drive meaning themselves from it. And I feel right. like, you know, either end is not fair, um, or at least I would say maybe missing the opportunity. Yeah, he has a whole thing about that that we'll get yeah. to at some point about how everybody actually worships something, whether they realize it or yeah, not. Yeah, exactly. Right? Of course we do. But the reality is, and this is a great, this is water moment, is that for me as the token agnostic on this podcast, yeah. I, for a lot of my default setting on religion, for example, at this point, having been somebody who was at once a very religious person for yeah, for yeah. a lot of my life, and and now I'm and not still anymore, participates. I mean, musically, still participates, yeah. and it's I still go to church every single week. Yeah, as to David Foster Wallace, actually, yeah, oh, um, although he didn't call himself a Christian or something, but but he but he went to church every week because he right. derived meaning from it. Um, what I've found now as somebody who is sort of an outsider to that tradition but sitting there, is that there are real and meaningful things in religion that go beyond the things that I assumed were keeping people tethered to it. Mm. So for a long time, as somebody operating on a default setting with religion, I had assumed the reason why it had survived for millennia was primarily fear. Yes. Right? It was primarily saying, this is what you do to make sure that your life has some sort of a meaning and purpose to it. And in the absence of that meaning and purpose, you will burn and torment whether yeah. metaphysically or you know else elsewise right um 
because at the you know the reality is is that like that is the single most powerful thing other than love right love is like the only thing stronger than death to use a quote from the bible yeah the fear of death is like so overpowerful for people and yes. that would definitely make it easier for a belief system to um, exist but the reality is is look at all the shit that christianity <clears throat> and not just christianity but all the abrahamic religions have gone through like wars yeah. crusades oh so much incredible persecution there yeah. has been so much that's happened to the ways that we think about spirituality and the spiritual systems we impose on ourselves for you know thousands and thousands of years at this point yeah and yet they're still here Right? They're right. still a part of societies, and there are still really tangibly good purposes to having religious um, systems in place. Right, yeah. So that means that I have to question my default settings on that, and I have to think about why they prosper and why they're still here, and assume that the people who are sitting there aren't just afraid. Right. To assume that they're not just there because they were told to by somebody at some point in their lives as some sort of like a bargaining chip. Right. To assume, to choose consciously to assume as I'm sitting there looking at these people that they are there because they derive meaning from this. Yeah. That they are there because their lives are better in a tangible, measurable, empirical way from sitting in that pew, right? Some of them. <laughs> some, some of them. And that's the thing is that, is that many of them probably are not. No, Many of them are probably sitting there lying to themselves. Many of them are probably sitting there uh, in complete contradiction to the virtues that they're supposedly worshiping. In right? the same way that we do about every other aspect of our life. The same way reason so many people stay with uh, spouses for way too long, you know, or forever even that they know are it's an unhealthy relationship. You know, I mean, just that just as you said, whether you're worshiping in a religious sense or in a religion or elsewhere, like that's happening in some aspect of your life. There are drivers of you uh, living, getting up every day and, you know, going to work and like living out your life with other people, <laughs> um, whether those are as um, surfaced and specific as a religion or whether they are far, you know, less, um, what's the word? Overt. Explicit. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but it's all there. And by the way, I would say that we're all probably worshiping uh, many idols, I guess, you know, when you think about consumerism and, and the other sort of aspects of everyday life uh, within each culture, um, where am I going with that? I mean, I guess I, it's just that, um, I don't know. I want to hear more from David Foster Wallace, actually. Yeah, well, and I can skip to the worship part, actually, because it's kind of... Whatever, I think, yeah, wherever you think. Well, I think, I think it's worth kind of getting to. So so this this is, um, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to the, to the whole, like, uh, the... Uh, tyranny of the individual mind part in a minute mm. but the, what, what he says about worship is uh <clears throat> okay so I, I, this is kind of a longer I'm, I'm, i'll read more than i plan on reading for this because i think it actually speaks to exactly what you're talking about and also because he's like the greatest writer of our era so i'm, I'm okay yeah. with him speaking for us <laughs> so so here's what he says about this he says quote because here's something else that's weird but true in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life there is actually no such thing as atheism there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Wow. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. 
worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And then I'm just going to wrap with this, this little bit here. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but of course, there are all different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is the most precious to you will not hear much talk about much in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Unquote. Mm. So that's exactly what we're saying is that we all end up worshiping things, right? We all end up having subconsciously. Exactly. That's where I think can be the most harmful. It goes back to the fish, of course, right? That you're not acknowledging. It's all that invisible stuff that I think drives so much of our lives. And by making it visible and reflecting on it and like doing the work of maybe even fighting against it, that to me feels like the purpose of life, <laughs> you know? I mean, if we're doing it right, I mean, that that's what's always resonated with me. And I will say that when I heard you read that, uh, I so clearly heard what I feel is what Christianity is supposed to be. You know, it, it's something I've struggled with. I, I grew up Christian, first Greek Orthodox, and then um, I have been mostly Catholic lately, um, though I guess not formally. I was not like rebaptized or whatever. But anyway, the the what has stuck with me so much is the uh, version of, of God that Desmond Tutu describes in his writing. Um, I believe the book is called God Has a Dream which even that visual, uh, this idea that um, Christianity is about following Christ, right? We all know that. That's what it's supposed to be, right? And there's this classic Gandhi quote about it, about something like, you know, <laughs> uh, he did, he didn't, he isn't someone who describes himself as Christian, but he's someone who follows Jesus and so sees how many Christians are not actually following the person that they are. You know, he had a much better quote for this. <laughs> yeah, I hope so, because that, that was not very poetic. <laughs> Um, my point, though, is that if we're led to believe that God had this child who went out and preached love, preached empathy, preached all these things, and then God allowed to be murdered by humanity, that to me is a powerful uh, frame for a religion, that you would you would base a religion off of that person who preached love above, above all else— and that you would, the God that you believe in allowed him to die, allowed his son, his only son, to die. Like that, whether you believe it, you know, literally or simply as a symbol for what your belief system, that to me 
um, is powerful because it says that we humans, there is no God controlling all the, all of us, you know, leading us to do certain things or like making me have cancer. So I uncovered the meaning of life. None of that bullshit, you know, according to me. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually, as Desmond Tutu describes, um, you know, this picture of like a, a guy passing a farmer and sees this like beautiful land and talks to the farmer and he's like, wow, look at what you've, you know, look at all of this beautiful um, farm that you have that you and God created. And uh, and the farmer says something like, yeah, you should have seen what it looked like before me, you know, and it was just God who had it. <laughs> and, and the point is that we are these like, you know, we are these uh, autonomous beings who have the ability to do good in this world. And like, if there is a God, it's a God who's up there hoping, dreaming, you know, that we do good. But like at the end of the day, you know, it's just as sad to see the wars and the conflict and so much that has come about. Anyway, I don't mean to get all religious, but like I'm, it, it so strikes me in your reading of that, that, you know, if, if you claim to be Christian or follow one of these religions that does ultimately teach empathy and love, um, shouldn't it all be based in that more than, you know, the dogma that has come out or the, the rules that we all follow and everything that's supposed to serve that feels more like it's serving an institution these days, you know, and that's where the struggle is for me too. Cause I, I say I'm a Christian, but like lately it's been really hard for me to go to any church or really consider myself, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, a card carrying follower of anything. Um, so anyway, that's what stuck out for me. Yeah, I, I think it, we'll definitely have a religion episode because there's so <laughs> I know, much to I pretty unpack much there. Just but, shared it. But, but I, I guess what I'm thinking, like looking at it through the lens of like my personal sort of beliefs. So I, I completely agree that like Christ as a figure was just an amazing person to follow and to emulate. And that he was so um, like he's somebody who basically did exactly what we're talking about. He questioned the default settings of his time. Yeah. The ways that we treat poor people, the way we treat people who are untouchable, the ways we treat each other. Um, and he completely turned all those things on his head because he came at it from this idea that you derive meaning from loving each other, right? And when you call that out to people, they will kill you. They will actually like, kill you. Like, think about but the that. the meaning was so strong that yeah. he actually died. And he did it knowingly, right? Right. If you look at it from, like, an ecumenical, or if you look at it from, for example, like a, uh, like a scriptural standpoint, yeah. Yeah. he died, he willingly went there after the conversation in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? That's he right. chose to go through with it. Yeah. If you look at it in a non-biblical um, sense, he still actually didn't stop preaching. He right. still didn't stop doing this. So he knowingly killed himself. Essentially, he he put himself in a mechanism that would get him killed. Right? right. Right. But what to me is actually more powerful is the idea that there was no God involved in this thing. And I'm not saying that in some sort of like an edgelord atheist way because oh, I'm yeah, not yeah, an yeah. atheist. But I'm saying it because I think it's more powerful that a guy living that long ago in that place with that little context to the the types of things that he was espousing that he could choose to say in spite of all that, that this is important enough that my death will allow this message to resonate and I will allow myself to be killed so that people will talk about me after I'm gone. Right. And whether or not this whole God framework was just a way of perpetuating that or whether or not it was real because who the fuck knows? Sure. It's not our responsibility to figure that out. Um, it's important because you and I are both looking at the story and deriving similar but slightly different meanings from it, yeah. but, but it's both real meaning, right? And that's the reality. That, and I, I can listen hit, to you yeah. and I can take it as totally valid yeah. because I can see how it informs your life and your decisions. Right? I mean, totally. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like, what is real for you? You yeah. know, like, can we live in a world where that kind of God is real for me, but not for you, and that's okay? Right. I don't need to convince you or, like, try to, you know, 
preach something to in order to evangelize other people. I mean, I can do it in a way that is like authentic and, you know, if I see you hurting other people, I can try to talk to you about empathy or, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's things obviously we can do as human beings with each other. Um, but for me, I feel like where we get, it gets into this dangerous space where you feel like what is real for you has to be real for someone else yeah. and you have to make them think it's real. That to me is just, you know, the downfall of, of so much of humanity, I think. And you have to prove to them that what you think is the way that they should be thinking as well. And I don't mean this just in terms of religion. Yeah. I mean it in terms of the capitalist society that we live in, right? That you measure yourself by the amount of large televisions that you have in your house, right? right. You measure yourself by the graduate degree that you have. Yeah. That you measure yourself by how well you fit into this cookie cutter idea that we have a middle class lifestyle that we can prosper within, that we can have children, and that we can, you know, duck out of when it's our time on this earth to leave. Yeah. And that like that that basically the idea is that your happiness and your success is measured in terms of how well you measure up against that ideal that you have had no fucking say in. That's right. Right. Yeah. And here's the reality is that we all get swept up into it because that's the mechanism that that is the that is like the the operating system for our lives. That's the water that we swim in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. We are through no choice of our own a part of that system. Yep. And we will probably stay within that system until we die because that is our society is engineered to drive us in that direction and because some of us really love that existence and that is great right yeah but within that system if we can't see it then we have no say over how we interpret it and how we derive meaning from it and i think that that's like something that once you once you realize it is uh is like so immensely powerful (laughs) it reminds me of of the you know another classic example of this of course like so much of storytelling comes from the bible or other you know everything we're talking about is so deep deep rooted in the storytelling uh and the matrix is the first thing that just came to mind right yeah this idea of course totally of, of neo you know suddenly finding out that you actually literally live in this artificial world right that's been created whoa um, yeah, and as silly as it might sound and as it plays out in terms of, you know, great action scenes and all of that. That's a great movie. Um, I used to watch that fucking movie. It's I didn't amazing. even have a DVD player. I had a fucking DVD-ROM on my computer, um, which was in my room at the time, which was amazing that the computer was in my room because I was, you know, I was the nerd in the house. Yep. And, like, that, I would watch that movie legit, like, multiple times a week. I mean, it's, just, it's fucking mind-blowing on so many levels. But anyway. It is great, yeah. Um, and, of course, at the time, I never would have expressed it as this kind of story, but... Um, you know, it was more about the action and the visuals and like so much about it. And I imagine that it spoke to me at a deeper level that I couldn't articulate. Right. Um, but there is something profound about this idea of waking up to a world that you thought you knew, you thought you understood this existence that you thought you knew. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's the hashtag woke thing, I guess is another way of thinking about it. Right. It's like, wow, some, some of what I've actually believed my whole life and I've taken for granted is, not real it's not it's not what gives me meaning it's not driving me in life anymore it doesn't have to and that it's separate from me yes that it's not me right the the other important thing of that too is that it's not like this is just a you have an awakening moment and then you live on your life in this uh state of um what's the word awareness or yeah awareness or enlightenment right that's not how it works of course right i mean at least in my experience i mean this is like the this is water thing i get why you would literally stamp that on your arm because we've got to remind ourselves we've got to shake ourselves out of that every day and that's fucking that's what makes it so hard it's not just like light bulb goes on you live your life in a in a better way or whatever more meaningful way for you um it's this constant uh mindfulness Exactly, and it's hard. I have a, a little thing that will kind of illuminate yeah, yeah. more of that. This is another. This is just two uh, two 
sections that I want to read quickly. So he says the point is that so he's talking about being stuck in that checkout line and all these different you know ah, the quotidian so banalities this. This is of, of living a day. One of the parts that right? I remember very clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm going to skip through some of the details in it, but uh, but the ba- but of uh, uh, kind of the bookends are. Quote, the point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly, actually, a a little bit of context for people who don't know it. He basically says that what nobody will tell you as college graduates, because remember, this is a commencement address, is that once you get out of here, life is going to be so fucking boring. For the mo- it, will, it will be moments of like incredible achievement waiting and excitement, in line but a, a lot store. of waiting in line, a lot of being cut off in traffic, a lot of realizing you forgot something and you have to drive back to work to go get it. A lot of like realizing in the morning you ran out of coffee and putting it on a list somewhere. A lot of life is that. And and we know that, right, as parents and as just humans. And this is something that we talk about on this show a lot. And that is an unescapable, an inescapable reality of life, right? But th- what we can do is, is contextualize it. So he talks a little bit about, about that here. He says... The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in, because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop, because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line or how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of that line. And look at how deeply and personally unfair this is. And then he skips and and there's a bunch of stuff and he says, but most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice... You can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of a husband who is dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicle department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Or consider... Uh, of a, a, a bureaucratic kindness... There's a a typo in the transcript. (laughs) If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and you are operating on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider the possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you really learn how to pay attention, then you will know that there are other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred on fire with the same force that made the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff is necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. Ah, I so love that. Yeah. I so love that. That's it. It's your decision right. to see it. So the it's first not day, about whether it's true, objectively true, you know, that there's meaning in something. Um, again, the always trust magic thing. It's not saying that there is magic there as a truth, right? It's that there's mystery around that and it's up to you to interpret it. And it's and it's taking that that effort, which is really hard to do. And it's something that we've talked about on the show in a lot of contexts, at least with parenting especially, which is that yeah. like the reality is that we're going to go home tonight and we're going to be exhausted. We're going to be shitty people. We're going to be <laughs> shitty people, right? Our default setting will be, I deserve time to relax and to chill because I had a hard day. Yeah. You and I both have hard days at work. I know your schedule. Like, we, we, we work very hard, right? <laughs> yeah. 
we deserve a little bit of headspace when we get home to not be working hard. But we also have families who deserve our attention more than our jobs do at the end of the day, at least in my, within my personal meaning system. Well, right? and just that framing of it. I mean, I think I so fall into that where I deserve, you know, that half hour, hour of like TV time at the end with Bethany where we can just like chill out, right? Um, but, you, but, but, but I stop and I think about that, okay? And I think if I then set up my night so that you know, I, I get home and I, granted, I'm looking forward to picking up the kids and I like have five minutes of that. And then I'm like, all right, now I'm ready for <laughs> focusing on right. the, the time at the end of the day. Then your whole experience before that is about getting there. OK, so you're not in the moment. And then you get there and like I'm not I do enjoy watching, especially like some of the incredible TV and like, you know, I derive some meaning out of that. But at the end of the day, is that the thing that's really like soul filling for me, you know, as opposed to those nights where. We didn't choose to do that. Um, and maybe like the kids ended up going to bed later because we got, you know, we were doing something else, but we were like totally in the moment. You know, maybe we went for a walk and did something to break the routine. And then we didn't watch something, but we actually had like an enriching conversation, the two of us. Like when I say all this, it sounds f- fantasy, right? That, But I, but I feel like the, the nights where I, or the experiences I have where I feel like I'm actually getting that sort of soul food or whatever you want to call it, um, are not the ones that I've lined up in a certain way to get my time or make it about me. Um, and I, But I still keep falling into that trap of like needing the relaxation time for myself to watch TV or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Of course I know it's, what you mean. And that's why it's your default setting. And yeah. there's also nothing wrong with default settings. No, there isn't. And I think that's what's important to remember too. Like, yeah. you know, talking in terms of like operating systems, for example, there are defaults. <laughs> we are operating systems. We yeah. are. AI. <laughs> there are default settings on your computer that are default because that's the way the computer runs the smoothest and the easiest and everything is set up to interface properly when it's on its default, right? Like if you start modifying parameters, then it introduces complexities to a system that most systems can deal with and it's fine. Well, that's but, the thing, yeah, because it's like when are those um, unhealthy defaults and that it's the recalibration of that, which at first is disruptive and maybe even makes things worse, feeling but then ultimately like can you actually change your system defaults (laughs) right can you overclock your cpu right yeah you don't know that until you try it but to try it is to is to disrupt your default and that means that there will be instability and it will be hard it will be resource intensive right right and i think that um that to me is like the great the great thing that we all struggle with and that it's also like important just like we learn with our mindfulness and meditation stuff not to beat yourself up over it right totally there will always be nights where what i want to do is just i mean like there is something you know i Here's an example, okay? There have been nights, especially in the last few months, when Micah has been working so fucking hard on school, and I've been working, so, like I'm doing a music piece right now, I have the podcasting stuff this week, there's just like so much going on, it's so complicated, and uh, and we are tired, right? Yes. <laughs> and and a lot of the time, we're not getting that time together to just like sit with each other and, and just relax, because we both have stuff to do at night, and we're just like falling, passing out afterwards, yeah. and I lay there in bed with her, um, and she's already asleep, And I'm like, you know, kind of like falling asleep. And I'm thinking how lucky I am in that moment to be there with the woman that I love most in the world, more than anything else in my life, that I'm actually next to her. Yeah. And that we're both alive in that moment and that we're tired and it's okay that I don't, I'm not going to get anything else done today and maybe tomorrow's going to suck. I don't know yet. But in that one moment under the stars coming from our skylight, I'm with the woman that I love and we're asleep together. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Which is funny, and I'm it is... just imagining then in that moment a fart that just interrupts. <laughs> <laughs> that usually comes next. 
But, that, uh, but that's no, like I an important. And that's so important because yeah. if we don't do that, then yeah. we are always just falling asleep next to somebody, right? If we yeah. don't do that, then we're just passing out. But the thing is that in that act of passing out, you can remark upon the fucking celestial miracle that is the fact that you have somehow, through an incredible confluence of things, <laughs> arrived at the configuration of particles that can lay in bed next to somebody that you love yeah. who's formed from an entirely different configuration of particles in that one moment in time, and that that moment in time is deliberately evanescent, and that's why there's meaning in it, that our lives are not permanent, that our lives are fleeting, and because of that, it is a constant chance to check in with it. And you made that decision, right? That was your truth in that moment. And I feel like this comes back to so much of of what's in the Book of Joy as well in terms of the way that we frame our lives. And not this artificial trying to make everything positive, but like thinking about the experience of others and that no matter what challenge we're in, there's someone else going through something very similar. Like we're all unique in a way, but we're also, you know, people have been through the same shit and worse. (laughs) And that can also be a powerful aspect of all this. Cause I think about those nights that we have as parents in particular, where you're just like desperate for sleep and you're still having to fucking walk around the house, like a mad person with a baby trying to get them to settle down. And I remember one of the things that helped me in those moments is thinking about the fact that there's another parent literally in this moment yeah. In the same situation in the middle of the night. That's one of my favorite moments on the show so far, I think, because I, I think we it's touched on beautiful, this, exact, yeah. this exact idea, you know? Right, right. And, and like, again, it's not about this artificial, like, think positive, you know? It's just, like, just being present with it and realizing that. And even in those hard moments, that can be a powerful um, technique, not to escape the moment, not to, like, go to your happy place or whatever, but to just, like, be with it, you know? That's the reality, and... Frankly, the fact that I like had to stay up at that hour with a baby who like I've I spent so much of my life um, wanting, you know, and then trying to create (laughs) and then having like this miraculous series of events, as you described, led to me even having this baby. Um, And again, I know we're walking a fine line here because I don't want to sort of discount the like really difficult stuff that goes into that stage, especially and how fucking insane you feel. <laughs> um, and the last thing you want to be told is just like, think positive. Um, but yeah, I just think there's there's so much power in that, in the framing of our life and, and what we do. And, and basically what I also hear expressed in all of this and what I got to with the religious stuff is that um, if we can frame it as this uh, communal experience where we're, we're, we're trying to sort of drive meaning from that interconnectedness and that, you know, doing good with each other, for each other, whatever, that to me feels like a frame that's going to really lead somewhere productive (laughs) rather than the consumerism, the, you know, cosmetic, whatever else, body, whatever else he more uh, uh, articulated in a more eloquent way. (laughs) Him and Gandhi, yeah. Him and Gandhi. You're absolutely right. And and I think something I'm noticing with you as you're talking through this stuff with me is you keep apologizing. So, you know, for example, you were saying soul food or whatever, or you were saying, um, oh, yeah. you know, you're saying uh, think positive, but like that's, you know, obvious and things like that. But like he says, the reality is that these banal platitudes are actually life-saving. Mm. Like there's a reason why we say these things, right? Yeah, yeah. And to look at it as not just a platitude, but as a signifier of something universal, right? Right. Think positive when you when you actually stop and think about it and, you know, t- separate it from like self-help books, separate, separate it from, you know, the laws of attraction, <laughs> separate it from the secret, separate it from all that stuff. The idea of thinking positive is a really profound concept. I it think, is because if you have agency over how you think, then you have agency over your life. It's mind blowing. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And it, <laughs> kind of literally, right? Yeah. It actually is. If, if you if you can stop for a second and you can say, 
okay, I am, and it does. It does, here's the thing: is it does not mean ignoring. It does not mean living in bliss, blissful ignorance. It means saying I am aware of the totality of what I'm doing right now. Yeah, and I'm going to choose to be worth it. I'm going to choose to do something about it. Right? Yeah, and that is like uh, scary and very difficult. There's a vulnerability there too that again I'm reminded of Desmond Tutu and and how he describes this experience of not only uh, experiencing more joy as a result of that, but also more profound even grief and sadness because you're so open to that full sort of range of experiences. So like you said, it's not ignoring the tough stuff. It's like being there for that too. Um, but that kind of vulnerability and even being able to reach those extremes of you know emotions, uh, I guess within a healthy spectrum, because I think about the idea that you can also maybe, I mean, you don't plunge yourself into depression, but like <laughs> too far of the extremes is probably not a good right, space to right. be in either. But anyway, where I'm going with that is just that I think that that is a healthy sort of um, approach to life that you would be sort of fully experiencing the the full spectrum of it. Right. And that in fact, you can only reach both ends if you are able to go to both places i don't know exactly and and i think uh i think you can't do that unless you can see what both places look like and you can see the whole system you yeah know? yeah the first day that i got the tattoo i was stuck in traffic i'm gonna brought this up on the show a long time ago but um it's fine i was driving to pennsylvania for a reunion with uh, a bunch of friends and, and my arm was still actually wrapped from it and this is the first tattoo i ever got um and uh and and Micah, of course, got got one as well. She yeah. has it in my handwriting, which is unfortunate because my handwriting is terrible. So people don't oh, never I, know I what it actually says. I didn't know she had says. it in your handwriting. Yeah, it's on her wow. arm. Um, and what's the significance of the font that you chose? There actually is a significance to it. This I is, figured it's, there was. Yeah, it's, it's Eames Century Modern, uh-huh. um, which is so. So Charles and Ray Eames are um, another big inspiration for me. They were American designers. They were husband and wife, who um, kind of defined the look of uh, of American mid century modernism in a lot of ways. Yeah, and went on to you know they had a uh, they they had a, a very far reaching influence on a lot of creative arts in the in the middle of the twentieth century. But part of it is the fact that they worked together on a lot of it, and that they were a really wonderful partnership. That's and so cool. something to kind of strive for. And I, I just derive a lot of meaning personally from them. And it's funny, you know, I'm sitting here thinking like, I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a, a piece of music for a chamber ensemble based around the work of Charles and Ray Eames. I also wrote a piece for a soprano song cycle based around the work of David Foster Wallace interpreted through wow. a friend of mine who's the erasure poet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny with, with his work, um, the reason why it hit me so hard, like I think the first time I was, exper- was, was exposed to it is because it was the first time I'd felt like there was somebody else who shared my headspace in a real way. Like uh, I felt very much like I was on a, a wavelength with him. And I'm not saying that to make myself sound brilliant <laughs> or anything like that. I'm not saying that I can articulate myself the way that he could articulate himself because I, I cannot. But I'm saying that I felt like what he was trying to express was what I'm grappling with a lot. And he was saying it the way my internal monologue operates, I think. Yeah. And when you find people like that, I think it's important to understand like it's why special. and what mm. it is about them that speaks to you, like you with you too. And I'm, I know there are other things, but I keep coming back to you too. <laughs> no, There's it's a reason true. why they resonate with you. Oh, they have so true for yeah. your entire life, right? Yeah. And it's not just about what you're into, and it's not just mm-hmm. about the music you like. It's, a, it's something within like the creative process that leads to that music is informing something about your life. That's right. right. I mean, if, I may not even. I certainly don't fully understand it. I think that we we often particularly with music, but I guess any art form, right? It speaks to us at such a level that we don't necessarily fully understand even. I mean, you're someone who I feel like can articulate, um, especially with art, more of the the why, like why it resonates with you. Um, whereas I feel like for me, a lot of it is in this sort of mystery space that I'm okay with, but it, it's interesting to start to unpack and, and or could be um, to understand because there's a lot there, you know, there's a reason why certain things speak to us. 
Right. Which, yeah, go ahead. Well, and also it, it, it tells me a little bit about wisdom. And what I mean by that is, uh, so in, in realizing that I had a lot of similarities to David Foster Wallace, uh, if not necessarily intellectually, at least in terms of what I was thinking about and how I was thinking about it, yeah. um, it kind of made me look at his life more and what happened to him and uh, and what he struggled with and realizing that a lot of what he struggled with was basically being fought against within his work. That a lot of his work was a way of unpacking things that he was dealing with personally. Uh. And, and kind of illuminating lessons that he had, which is why This Is Water speaks to me so strongly. But also, something that I've, I've realized about myself uh, is that I was, I think I, I was hampered a little bit by developing intellectually too fast as a kid. Yeah. And I see that a lot with, with our kids, especially with Jude, because he's older than Henry, so he get, he's just... He's like very clearly smarter than other kids his age by default would be. I think. Yeah. Not saying he's like you know a genius, but but he but he he's, just he's genius. He just he, he's he's one, once in a generation. No, but but he just he just uh, he doesn't have to work very hard. He kind of knows things that are being taught already. Yeah. And I still remember what that was like. You know, I remember uh, being treated differently from other kids because I was doing much better than them on things, and because I was helping teachers with certain stuff, and I was, you know, I was, I was a very advanced. I, I did like bonus questions on things. <laughs> I was, for whatever reason, just the way I was born. I was really advanced for a long time in my early life, and then that stopped, right? Because everybody else caught up to me, and then many of them started surpassing me, not just with grades, but in my ability to understand new concepts and to organize my thoughts. Mm. And that was a devastating loss to me that I still struggle with. That was a devastating loss because I went from knowing exactly who I was and having this thing to lord over everybody because I was always the smartest person to not having that anymore and having to struggle to understand things that I had no mechanisms for understanding because I never needed to develop them because I just mm. knew them already. And, and I think about that a lot when he talks about this idea of worshiping things. I was kind of accidentally, even though I was a child, worshiping my intelligence because it was how I derived my personal meaning from the world at that point in my life. Oh, man, you're hitting on something that feels so relevant right now, because I think uh, we know that our generation younger, much less likely to be religious. Right. So that worshiping that feels to me like a diminishing thing. And I'm not framing that as a positive or negative. It's just is. Um, Whereas. Uh, science and intelligence, like for good reasons, there that you could say are being worshipped by our generation, even in the way that we're parenting kids in such new ways that uh, I think this is the first time I've actually stopped to think about maybe the dangers of that. And you saying that, you know, that we we so prize the scientific method and like I want my daughter to embrace science, you know, and 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 even worship it to to a certain extent and intellect. Um, but thinking about the real limits to that is, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just, I'm stopping to think about it now, you know? Because we've like th- made this decision as a society to objectively value <clears throat> STEM, right? Yeah. Which is great because we need that to survive as a species and to, it needs to be more diverse. And there are obviously <clears throat> really good reasons to have empirical frameworks to govern the way we interact of with course. the world, right? Yeah. Like, we're both very pro-science. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Need to deal with climate change, but, you know? We, but the thing is, is that we, we... See, here's the thing, is that we're saying we know, we assume, we get it, we know. But the reality is, is do we actually think about it? Do we actually think, why have we decided that? Yeah. And what are we doing by assuming that there is always a right way to go about something, right? And what are the limits to that? And what are the limits to it? Right, because What's I think, happening in the vacuum created by it, right? Well, because I think there's also a tendency here, I mean, we're both uh, more liberal in our politics as well, let's be clear, if you couldn't guess. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that there is a question around the sort of moral compass within 
that party or that side and the sort of prizing intellect and yes. things and, and sort of dismissing um, the other side as less intelligent. Yes. You know, they don't believe in climate change, et cetera. Which, they must be which, a bunch of fucking idiots or right. they must be a bunch of evil people. Right. right. And in fact, they probably would very much say that uh, that the evil is us sort of worshiping intellect. I mean, I'm I'm very much black and white generalizing here, but but there's something to challenge ourselves in. I think you know that I I want to st- I want to think about myself because I've also been thinking through this conversation. How do we take what we're talking about here, which are discoveries for us as individuals, and translate that for our kids, and not like not do that thing where we're just sort of you know we're pushing our own meaning onto them too because that's not going to work and could actually lead to the opposite right where they rebel and become republicans right exactly (laughs) and nobody wants that well but i I guess as we as we wrap there there was a great uh, part of the speech that we won't get into now but it deals a little bit with that which is that this idea of the two eskimos do you remember that portion of the no i don't so there's one eskimo who's an atheist and one eskimo who's a a believer in christianity and one and the, the atheist gets lost in a storm and um, the and the Christian says uh, and, and he says that, you know, he prayed to a God. He said, like, you know, whatever you are, like, can you save me from the storm? And he was saved. And then the Christian Eskimo says, well, you know, aren't you glad that you prayed to God? And the other one says, no, it's because a, a couple of other Eskimos walked by. So the reality <laughs> is that both of them are completely valid. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's true. A couple of Eskimos walked by. And according to this other guy's belief system, that was because of some divine intervention. Right. And there's no bridge between those things. And there's no gap between those things. Those are just two different ways of looking at, it, at the same situation. And it's an obvious. Yes. Again, banal, you know, idea that in, in this liberal arts context that we're kind of framing this conversation, that, that, that there's more than one way to look at the same problem. But the thing is, is that the ways that you look at that same problem are indicative of huge root systems into yes. these people, right? Yes. That they didn't just spontaneously arrive at this thing. These are two people who have developed in these incredibly vast networks to arrive at very different places in their lives. And they have universes within them that are also happening. That's right. That we can never illuminate unless we start to get to know them. So the thing is, is when I look at a Trump supporter, and I'll call it out, um, I have to fight that so hard because I am so primed to dislike them and yeah. to discount them as human right and because it feels That's the danger it feels good it feels because it's feeding my default thing right yeah it feels good to it's do like that the id part of our brain that it's yes. tapping into i think and yeah. we need to have this idea that we're right that they're wrong that we know and that they don't because you know what we do have numbers on our side and yeah. we do have plenty of reasons to say that we're right but to do that is to ignore why they're saying what they're saying yeah and that if you can understand that and you can talk then you can understand them as a person. And as soon as you can do that, you can unlock such a better, like, sacred experience of the world. Right? Yeah, totally. The thing is, it's like, think about for a second how fucked up it is that, like what I said earlier, which I still, on my default days, think, which is that to espouse this sort of beliefs that he does and his administration does, you have to either be an, a moron or you have to be willfully selfish and evil, yeah, right? yeah. My default setting is actually, I actually think that. Yeah. I actually think those people either have no clue what they're talking about or they know what they're talking about and they're weaponizing it, right? Yep. So that means that I'm, on by default, thinking that fucking poorly of 40% of this country, that I am surrounded by a sea of idiots and evil people, right? Yeah, yeah. But the real actual situation is that I don't think that. When I walk around a supermarket, I'm not looking at 40% of people thinking, what a fucking cretin, right? That's right. I'm not driving down the road saying, look at these fucking evil people. Because if I did that, I would be a murderer, right? Yeah. We aren't really like that. 
right? I but think until that's you true. think about it, you can't separate yourself from that lizard brain reaction. And now, when I, as, what I'm trying to do and why I have a tattoo about this is to remind myself physically when I see it yeah. to stop thinking about that, to start thinking about them as people and to start empathizing with them in a deep way, not for empathy's sake and not for morality's sake, yeah. but for the sake that I deserve the right to control the way I think. Yeah. And I am choosing in this moment, in this chaotic, wonderful, phantasmagoric existence, <laughs> to think about them as more than just an avatar of an idea that I disagree with. I mean, I, I think that's well summed up, and I feel one of the most harmful things that's happened to our society right now, and that there's a tendency to think from our side, if we just if someone else gets into power who we believe in, we're gonna be we're just gonna overnight be in a better place as a country. And in fact, it's possible that we'll be worse. It's possible that we will continue down this divisive path where we don't treat each other like human beings. Um, and to me, that is another form of worship that worship that just puts again, um, in this case, politics. I guess um, a power or power above each other. You know, and it, it seems to me that what we're trying to get at here and and want to sort of raise our kids with is that empathy, that idea of of worshiping. Um, each other. I mean, it's not not quite that literal. It's like worshiping, um, worship love, community or love. Yeah, I mean that to me just feels like it's so much more boundless and so much more. Um, I don't know, feeding us meaning in life, you know, and putting us on a path towards I don't know something more than just like our individual basic instincts. The rat race, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be about more than that. In closing, like I, I, you know, circling back to our kids, like like you are, um, what we can do to make sure that we don't end up always abusing and and worshiping power at the sake of other people is to raise children who won't do that. Like it's it's as simple and banal and beautiful as that, right? Yeah, we have to raise our kids better, and to do that, one great way of doing that is to help them question their default settings. I think that's it. Right? To yeah, help because, model this kind of behavior. Because when I heard you say that, it's like the the term, you know, or the challenge for us as parents, it's like we it's not we're not controlling them, right? That would be the wrong way to look at it that we can actually dictate that they turn out good or whatever or that they then we're creating their system for them, other right? people above all else or whatever. Yeah, I mean the the reality is it's like helping them. I think you're right. It's questioning water, <laughs> you know, like actually going there. Um which is hard. But yeah, that's our challenge, I guess, huh? It is, it is our challenge. And I, as we close, I'm going to read the very final paragraph of the speech before he just basically says goodbye. <clears throat> In closing, he says, quote, It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water. This is water. I wish you way more than luck. That's what he says. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, I wish you more than luck. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good luck at home. Bye, Good everybody. Luck. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.